Hello and welcome to another episode of the Races Formula E podcast. I'm your host Andrew Vanderberg and joining me today is team director at Jaguar Racing, James Barkley. Unfortunately, we should have been mulling over the first two races at Santiago now, but following the postponement of the double header, instead we have to look ahead to Deria, which will start the season next month. James has had a 21 career in the automotive and motorsport industries, where he's had a variety of roles at Lotus, Bentley, and of course, at Jaguar. It's been since 2016 that he's overseen Jaguar's return to international motorsport and Formula E, and has claimed two E-Prix wins at Rome in 2018 and Mexico City last year. He's also a keen amateur racer, and I'm led to believe a dab hand in karting. Uh, now, on the eve of the 2021 Formula E season, he joins us here today at the race. James, a very warm welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to have great to be with you. And uh, yeah, appreciate the compliments. Probably slightly overplayed my ability there. But uh, yeah, really good to be with you guys. As always, we're joined by our man in the Formula E paddock. One, one day you'll be back there, Sam, I'm, I'm convinced. Uh, it's uh, Sam Smith. Um, so Sam, just a quick one on, on your impressions of James. You've known him for a few years now. Well, I, th- I think from being the public face of such a prestigious mark and and brand such as Jaguar, first of all, it's a, it's a big job. I think uh, inevitably that comes hand in hand with a, a certain degree of uh, of pressure and expectation. But especially when that manufacturer has been away from top level international racing for so long, um, I, th- I think after a tricky first season, which we'll no doubt come on to later, Jaguar has done a really really good job in Formula E, winning races and proving that they have formed a strong technical and, and sporting package. And, and James has been a, a key part of that. Personally, I, I really like dealing with James. Um, I, I, you know, we he, he's got the fever, let's say. He loves his racing, which always, always helps. But yes, there's a, there's a lot of, I suppose, corporate and marketing work that goes intertwined with with the roles that uh, that James and his fellow team principals have. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite uh, comfortable and, and uh, interested in talking to James about the merits of Teo Fabi or Raul Bussell's efforts at Jaguar 30 years ago. So it means... Um, he means he's, he's got he's cultivated this position where he people know that he's a, ultimately a fan of racing too. So in fact, that's what's cool about Formula E because the vast majority of team principals have, have sort of similar attributes as well, which makes it a, a nice paddock to be in. James, let's uh, pick up on that, this racing fever. Where did that come from? How did you get into motorsport? Yeah, well, I think uh, I probably destined, actually, from from where I grew up. So I've told the story before, but I grew up in, in South Africa. I actually um, grew up in Kyle Army, so uh, literally a stone's throw from the circuit. So from a young age, I can still remember the noise of World Sports Car Championships and Formula One cars. Um, and it was kind of very much, you know, from my point of view, something I was exposed uh, exposed to at a very young age. Um, and, and just naturally kind of became really passionate about the sport, you know, whether it was watching it on television, going to the racetrack myself and, and actually uh, eventually kind of started working and getting involved in motor racing from from about the age of 14, it was 13, 14, it would have been. Um, in fact, my first ever job, interestingly, at a racetrack was um, was as a, as a marshal working at a track called SWAT Cops in South Africa, which is just outside uh, Pretoria. Uh, we later moved to, to Pretoria, actually, and you had to be 16, I think, officially. So I, I, I didn't necessarily tell the complete truth about my age uh, in order to get close to racing. And that was kind of the era of when, when touring cars were really starting to take off and um, 
yeah, and the fever absolutely started then. And the first ever racing car I actually ever was fortunate to, to sit in and go around was a, a Jaguar D-Type. Um, so ironic that uh, many years later, um, I'm so fortunate to be looking after the motor racing program of this amazing brand. I mean, you're starting off at a pretty high bar if a, if a D-Type's the first racing car you're sitting in. Um, who was it, the, you know, the drivers of that era that, that really inspired you, that you used to support? Yeah, and looking back, and actually it changes over time, but you know, growing up in South Africa, there was a lot of really uh, good local drivers, people like Saurel van der Merwe, who had a lot of success over in uh, in Le Mans at the time, and you know, he had quite a big profile back in South Africa at a, at a domestic level. But but internationally, you know, absolutely admired um, the likes of of, of it and um, uh, Nigel um, Nelson as well. You know, with those iconic uh, Brabham's were something I, I really kind of uh, I loved when I, as, a, as a young boy. Um, my first ever Grand Prix was actually South Africa Kyle Army '92, and talk about a race to be at that was uh, Mansell, Prost, and Senna fighting for the win. Um, you can't really get a lot better than that. So um, yeah, for me, that whole era, that era of Formula One is something that, uh, yeah, it definitely is hardwired into my brain and something which, which without a doubt kind of got me so passionate about, you know, being in a sport in any way I could. And obviously that started off, well, at least at one point with you behind the wheel and, you know, as, as a, a, an aspiring racing driver. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, when when you sort of first came to the UK and were part of the Lotus Motorsport thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, I got involved in karting when I first kind of moved over to, to the UK and my family's obviously English and um, uh, they moved back. And, and when I kind of started school, I got involved in karting. Uh, and it was actually kind of through through driving originally. So I did quite well at national kind of schools karting level. Um, and and from that point of view, I was very keen to to move move forward in the sport as a driver. And I looked at the options of of racing karts in the UK or potentially in Europe. Um, the, the the budget to do so even back then was incredibly high. Um, and it was kind of comparable with with moving into cars. So I kind of thought, you know what, the focus is probably best to try and, and get into cars. And it was about that time there was a scholarship program with um, Vauxhall were running um, and they did an annual scholarship program that Mike Nicholson had in place to find drivers to to push into the touring car program. Um, and I was really fortunate to do that. No, no car racing experience. And I actually came second to a guy called Alan Morrison, who you probably might remember. Alan uh, Alan actually ended up winning it. Uh, Mike was, was incredibly kind and his view is there wasn't meant to be a rookie prize that year, but he decided considering I hadn't had any background in car racing and had a very minimal amount of karting, he, he awarded me the, the, the top rookie and, uh, and supported me getting into the support series then for British touring cars, which was, uh, the Vectra championship. So that was kind of where it started out and, and went under Vauxhall's wing, um, under Mike, um, for that, for that year. Unfortunately, that first year was 1999 and that was the year when actually it was Vauxhall's last year in, in super touring and they had to wind their program up. Um, but it, it was it was really kind of fortunate that that Mike obviously having seen me um, help me get get a, kind of foot on the ladder also through the contacts that that he opened the door to um, I was given the opportunity to then move on to Lotus when when Vauxhall stopped its racing programs in in the British Touring Car Championship and, and that's kind of where that that opportunity came so I was asked to help Lotus um, uh, potentially from a driving side but actually also from getting Lotus Motorsport back off the ground there's only three people when I joined. Um, and the aim was to get Lotus back into racing. Um, and they had a vision to to create the, a support championship for the British Touring Cars with um, with the new Lotus Exceeds at that point in time. So we developed the, the race car and, and that's where it all kicked off. Actually, I, I remember Alan quite well because he, uh, he was a Honda British Touring Car driver when I 
was one of my first beats at Autosport was covering that. So uh, yeah. yeah. Um. So from Lotus to Bentley, and pretty soon into being a part of an amazing Le Mans Triumph. I mean, how how did that all come about? Yeah. So the the Lotus um, part was was really kind of a phenomenal opportunity. You know, we we literally created the support championship for the BTCC, um, and I actually had to go back and finish university, and it had been a wonderful journey. But I was very kind of conscious I wanted to, to finish my studies, so so I finished university. Um, uh, I was working at Lotus whilst also studying, and I, and I finished university. And at that point in time, there was the option to kind of go back to Lotus. This was in two thousand and two, or to um, uh, to look elsewhere, and it was a about that time, um, I was living in the northwest, so my family home is up up in Cheshire, um, and um, I I had some some local kind of contacts at Bentley, and one of them um, was heading up the communications for for Bentley, uh, and uh, Sarah Paris and Sarah um, uh, offered me uh, a role to join Bentley, looking after communications in the UK, um, so PR and communications for for the Le Mans program uh, and that was kind of when when I joined joined Bentley and yeah phenomenal time 2000 and uh, 2002 so Bentley had done its first year at Le Mans um, with that fantastic podium on the first time out uh, and I joined at a time when we were going to be kind of trying to to go for the win 2002 was was a was a year to really go and continue developing the car and the team though we knew that wasn't going to be our our winning year we entered uh, we entered with uh, the knowledge that it probably wasn't going to be the year we were going for victory, but we were absolutely going to gear ourselves up for, for 2003, which again was that that phenomenal year. So it was an amazing, um, off the back of a, a great kind of foundation with Lotus, um, doing pretty much everything from communications. I helped recruit the drivers. Um, I was involved in the setup and the whole kind of construction of how the championship was was, was formed. Um, then going on to, to Bentley with a, with a Le Mans program such a professional outfit, you know, Richard Lloyd and the team that supported technically that program. Um, I immediately kind of learned a lot from everyone involved in and around that program, not only from a team point of view, but the drivers we had involved, fantastic characters and and set the bar for for, for many, I think, likes of Tom Dindo um, and Guy as a youngster at that point in time, not to mention we had the second car with obviously Johnny, Mark, um, Mark um, and, and also David Brabham. So, amazing drivers to learn from and be around as well. Um, and it was, yeah, a really well-run program. We knew we had um, three years to, to win Le Mans and that, that year in 2003, um, it kind of was, was looking back quite incredible, you know, to say that you're going to do it is, is very, very challenging. Um, and to actually achieve it is another, and we had a, a incredible run in 2003 to, to, come first and second as you know beating beating the Audi R8 uh, I think the only the only car to ever really beat the Audi R8 at Le Mans and uh, at that level so um, something which was we were massively proud no matter how much you were involved in the program it was it was amazing and um, the the racing side was incredible but then also how how we did it at Bentley as well you know we went um, the day after on on Monday to the Champs-Élysées and drove the car with Derek Bell um, uh, and literally stopped traffic uh, and then literally packed everything up and drove to London and celebrated at the Savoy the same way that the Bentley boys did in the 1930s. So, yeah, looking back, it's kind of incredible to think it actually happened in that way. Uh, it was yeah something which um, yeah will will live on forever, I think, in, in history books, but also in, in my memory for sure. I mean, that happening. Quite early on in your career, must have you must have thought it was all like this, you know, you're going to be shutting down uh, main roads in cities from from now on. Correct, yeah, exactly, and and it's uh, again, I think, and to to be fair, obviously, I wasn't uh, I wasn't you know a, a kind of 
critical wheel, I would say, in, in the cog of that overall program. Um, people like Brian Gush, um, who I learned a lot from, actually, fantastic characters. He ran the Bentley racing programs for a long time. Um, great character, ran a fantastic kind of program, managed it very, very well, very frugally. Um, and, yeah, just seeing how you can how you can have an effective racing program from, from not necessarily the biggest budget, but, but it's all about kind of people in the right places doing the right roles and, and being disciplined. And uh, that's absolutely something which I look back and people like Brian, you know, I, I, I learn a lot from, um, yeah, as you say on paper, it kind of coming in and being at the right place at the right time, but knowing that the effort that went into that, um, I really kind of appreciate that now more than ever and doing, doing the role I do. So you Lotus, then Bentley, and then Jaguar's like you've knocked off the holy trinity of uh, iconic British motorsport brands in a row there. But of course, Jaguar hadn't done anything in international motorsport for quite some time when uh, when you were there. So just talk me through the process of deciding that Formula E was the was the right place to take it back on because most people naturally associate Jaguar more with endurance car racing than uh, say a single seater program. Yeah, absolutely. So when. When I joined uh, joined Jaguar from Bentley, I kind of one of the reasons I joined is, you know, incredibly passionate about about the brand. Um, you know, I've, my my father's always driven Jaguars, and and they've always been in and around the family. So from my point of view, I also felt there was an incredible opportunity um, to to do amazing things with the Jaguar brand. And at that point in time, um, part of my discussion about me joining was was actually about also trying to get us back into motor racing. So um, Agent Hallmark, who originally hired me into into Jaguars, actually. You know, I moved moved back to Bentley, ironically, uh, CEO there, and an agent said, "Yeah, you know, we we it will be fantastic if we can get Jaguar back into racing, but it, you know, it has to be for the right reasons." So, so when I joined, um, that was kind of one of my projects I was working on behind the scenes whilst doing other other roles initially, um, and we looked at a, all sorts of categories. It was clear that you know racing is at the heart of Jaguar's DNA, but it had to be for the right reasons. It, it couldn't just be about going racing for racing's sake. It needs to be aligned with the future of where the, the the business was heading, the future of where the industry was heading. Um, and at that point in time, you'll remember it was actually quite, it was actually as a brand coming back into racing, where, where did you head? And there were the, the convergence rules with GT at the time, um, the potential, you know, GTE and GT3 convergence rules that made a lot of sense actually, but then, but then didn't, didn't happen. So we, we looked at that closely um, and obviously Formula E then was announced and Alejandro's plan to, to, to create Formula E and what it was going to stand for. And it was on our radar. In fact, I was there at the, the launch at Donington um, as a kind of keen observer, just, just seeing where the championship was going to go. And at that point in time, things like the Paris Climate Change Convention hadn't happened. So, it was clear the electrification was on the radar, but then things started to really get momentum. And you looked at the cost of doing um, WEC as an LMP1 program. The convergence rules hadn't come together as they were intended. Um, and all of a sudden, there was this emerging um, future of mobility around electrification gaining momentum quickly, whether it was regulation that was coming into play um, or, or simply kind of consumer demand for wanting a more sustainable form of mobility was starting to really kind of come up on the agenda. So um, Formula E was getting stronger and stronger. And that, that first year of Formula E for us proved that it was it was going to it was going to survive, and actually, it was going to to do something unlike um, something we'd seen a long time in the, in, in the industry. So um, at that point in time, actually, Williams Advanced Engineering, who are working very closely with on the CX seventy five program, which is a hybrid supercar, which many of you remember was actually in the the Bond film, um, the last Bond film, 
that was a car we were intending to take to production. Uh, in the end, uh, we didn't make a production car, the 675. It stayed as a concept. But we'd learned a lot with Williams through the process of hybridization of a, of a, of a, of a hypercar like that. Uh, and a lot of the the requirements for Formula E, there was some synergies there. So um, along with, with Williams, we really kind of started to investigate Formula E further. Um, uh, and then came the challenge of actually getting an entry. So kind of cutting a long story short, yeah, we, we were we were knocking on the door for, for at least a year beforehand. And then the opportunity came to come into the championship. So we were faced with a with a exciting opportunity at that point in time, saying now's the moment. The bullseye is moving towards electrification. Um, do we potentially follow uh, others into other categories of motorsport, or do we pioneer the way that Jaguar has traditionally always done? And the answer actually was really clear. We thought, and we should go towards Formula E and, and electrification in the future. And I think history shows it was probably the right, absolutely the right decision when you look back. And Mercedes, BMW, Audi, Porsche, uh, all, all followed from from the premium sector. Sam, obviously, I was at Formula E at the time, and I remember when I first started to to hear the rumblings that it was Jaguar that was going to come in and, and take over that entry that uh, truly had squandered. Let's say, um, to me, it felt like a, a you know incredibly significant moment in the sort of genesis of the championship. You, you obviously reported on it at the time. Did do you see it that way as a, a sort of landmark for the for the series? Yeah, very much so. One of the landmarks for sure. It was an exciting time because what you have to remember back in 2015 when it was announced, the back end of 2015, was that apart from the sort of towing water exercises that, that Renault were doing with EDAMs and Audi with apps, Jaguar was the first full-on manufacturer to enter. And the fact that it kind of came in from, not not the wilderness, but it had come in after a long time away from international racing just added to the sort of free zone of, of excitement I think and you know that those F1 exploits were you know seemed longer ago than a, a sort of a decade when um, when it came back to international motorsport and I just think it it gave sort of added impetus to the championship too it, it soon became evident that it was a really serious proposition and despite taking a season to fully form if you will it added a a, a great deal to a rapidly growing Formula E landscape, I think. What, what I specifically recall actually tracking as, um, as a reporter then was the, the sort of the intricate genesis of it, as you alluded to, V2B there, when, when, when Trulli conked out pretty spectacularly at the first race in, in Beijing and, and Yano had plainly lost interest. And it, it all came together then. And within, you know, within two months, we were, we were up at the Shard um, listening to a meeting and listening to, to James and the guys uh, releasing the news so the big cat was back um and then very soon we they rocked up at hong kong and it was it was all systems go uh, james you mentioned there that you know the team uh, the jaguar had learned a lot working with williams on the cx75 of course they were also williams advanced engineering were the providers of the battery informally at the time and i can remember it causing quite a bit of a stir up and down the uh, the paddock when when that first came in thinking oh you might have an unfair advantage or whatever of course, ended up with that first season being a little bit of a struggle for the team. Do you think that you were sort of unfairly judged initially because of that relationship? Yeah, I think it's it was a natural expectation, natural kind of worry that that, that teams would have. And yeah, absolutely, as you say, it was definitely a concern for many. But I think very quickly, um, and the FI 
did a fantastic job of this. It was very clear um, how that would need to be structured and, and you know, the, the confidentiality need, need to sit between the two programs. Um, and, and the FI did a great job and, and Williams did a fantastic job to make sure that was never going to be, be an issue. Um, so and I think very quickly everyone realised that that wasn't wasn't a risk as well. And um, yeah, kind of testament to, to the great work put in. And as you said, we actually had plenty on our plate uh, anyway, which was simply about actually building a team from a blank sheet of paper. There was literally no motorsport function in Jaguar um, when we, we got going again. Um, it really was, I've talked about it being a blank sheet of paper. It literally was signatures on a page um, and um, the case of having to pull the team together uh, and not only on the technical side, but on the commercial side um, and make sure that we could uh, we could be ready for Hong Kong. And I think one of the, looking back, it maybe gets forgotten, but we, we, we stood in the shard in December, 2015 and we had to homologate, do our crash test, our powertrain in, in the March, April time the following year. Um, so we were always going to be have an incredible uphill you know, battle that first season. Um, uh, but, but when you we had to take that, that moment to enter the formula, there wasn't potentially going to be another opportunity in the same way. Um, and although it would have been great to, to maybe not 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 race so publicly as others did um, in the coming into the championship, like some Mercedes, obviously with... Um, with HWA, uh, obviously Audi, with Apt, um, we we were up for the challenge, and we were very clear. I think with our with our our expectation of what we thought where we thought we'd be, uh, and that was kind of really really critical. But yeah, that first season was was just really about learning to go racing again. To be really honest, the thing about not uh, you know set the world alight in in season one, but the second season, pole positions and podiums, you know, by Mitch Evans. Was it Mitch's arrival that? took that team on and how integral has he been to the, the whole Jaguar racing Formula E project? Absolutely. He, he's, Mitch has been a, a, a key part and you know, there's, there's a lot of key people in the, in the race team, but ultimately when it comes to it, you, you provide a driver with a car that's capable of going and, and winning races, hopefully, but um, when the chips are down and, you know, having, having done a uh, you know, comparably tiny amount of racing by comparison to the drivers we have, when you tighten your seatbelts and and um, the only connection to the team is the radio, um, you've got to deliver, right? And um, Mitch has done a phenomenal job. But, and, you know, the, the nice thing, I probably haven't told this story too much before, but when we first tested uh, with Mitch, was at Donington at that preseason test, as, as you well know, as you well know, um, and he, he was, he was really phenomenal straight away. He'd never been to Donington before. Um, so he'd never been around, around the circuit before. He'd never driven a Formula E car. He'd just come, at a GP2, um, a driver who had all the natural ability to be in Formula One. Um, and we'd kind of been in contact with with Mark, his manager, and we had contact kind of prior and, and we were together kind of keeping in contact. And and Mitch, to be fair, and Mark realized that actually why settle for, you know, potentially just trying to fight your way into Formula One with a less than ideal car, even if you can get in trying to take the money to get the seats or come into Formula E uh, where the future trajectory was heading towards. And that first day with Mitch in the car, it was clear he had incredible natural speed. Um, and and that was that was really exciting to see. So from from that moment, we we took absolutely a, a view that Mitch ha- had potential in the future. And we were going to learn as a team as well. You know, we weren't hitting the ground running perfect. You know, we, we had to, as I said, build the team. We had to get the right people in the right roles. That takes a little bit of time. And we thought, what? Well, yeah, now is our opportunity to start with a rookie as well. Um, and I think looking back now, everyone is, 
he's probably said it absolutely was the right call, you know, just look what Mitch has gone on to achieve, how he's how he's developing as a driver. And um, I've always said since that first season, you look back at the interviews, I've always said he's a driver who I think is world-class. Um, and I'm really pleased that we've been able to give him the stage to do that as well. It always um, interests me looking back at um, formerly in those early days and how things evolved, you know, from that very first race with a uh, installation lap that seemed to go on for about 20 minutes to the way that the, the drivers were learning how to manage energy and just the, the step-by-step evolution that's gone through it. Now, when you look at the team, how much of the DNA remains from that original setup that you put in place? Yeah, it's it's largely there, which is which is nice. Obviously, we've had some changes, and there have been some changes uh, in some of the powertrain design team. Um, there were some obviously evolutions in terms of the the, the race team themselves. Um, some key members of the team that joined us, the likes of Phil Charles, who obviously joined us um, after after that 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 first season, and yeah has made a made a big difference in the team as well and so like all these things you know craig wilson who heads up the technical side craig has been you know we've really kind of looked about keeping stability because one of the key things is uh, yeah, you know, I've I've really believe in you. Ha- consistency is key, right? If you're constantly changing, um, it's a bit like a setup on a car, right? If you make one change, you can learn where you're going, right? If you're making six, seven changes at the same time, what's made the difference? Um, it's hard to sometimes nail that down. So, you know, having consistency, um, building confidence with the team, having a no blame culture is important, and that comes through time, that comes through relationship, and that comes through trust with each other, and and that's kind of what we've been keen to to maintain. But obviously, then find and finding the right people in the right roles and, and we've had the opportunity to hire the, the right individuals to come into the team to strengthen us that's what, what we've done and, and and i think that's why you've seen every year um progress from us and i honestly don't think necessarily well we've always seen that in the final and championship results sometimes for factors outside of our control what you have seen is a stronger jaguar team every year and that's something which we we're working as hard as we can to, to keep keep doing um and um it's uh, it's if it was easy, you'd just uh, write the book and you'd follow the guidelines. But it's not like that. You you have to evolve. The competition is evolving all the time, um, and I'm I'm pleased to say that we've we've always taken that step forward, which is obviously what we're continuing to drive to do. So I'm in between seasons four and five. Obviously, the the second generation of Formula E car came, and with it, you know, the opportunity for for Jaguar to take that step forward and first win. And, you got the sense of what you'd seen in season four that that was the the trajectory that they were on yeah absolutely um probably a, a key moment for us was the pole in zurich um oh, firstly what a, what a great race track was zurich that was amazing wasn't it uh, um do you remember the, the the tram lines in turn one that was particularly uh interesting we did the track well before yeah what a great circuit zurich was so, so zurich was was kind of the turning point you know first pole position uh great lap from mitch and we we've been building car speed um you know we'd done some some really cool things technically with the car um you probably remember the you know some 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 of the technical things we introduced during the car that year um and we were we were kind of making progress um uh, you know as i said from, from our second season um in season 4 and we had that step in, in speed but that was a good example mitch started on pole but we we learned that day a lot because we'd been used to being back of the back of the field setting the pace controlling the race that was kind of a different 
challenge for for the team and for Mitch as well. And so that was that was probably one of the biggest school days we had because we had car speed. Um, but then knowing, oh, okay, now we understand what it takes to to be um, to, to, to be a team that can control the pace, run at the front. And if you remember, the Audi was incredibly strong that year. Um, and they had the ability to uh, to almost kind of uh, they had obviously an overlap over, overlap advantage in, in energy management. They really could just kind of control the pace. And that was the year we saw Lucas, wasn't it, come from the back in Mexico, and Zurich was another similar star race. Um, so to learn from the front was critical. And, and once we had that experience in Zurich, it really gave us another direction as well, especially in terms of finalising the design for for the following season um, and what we needed to do. So. As I look back, there were a few critical moments. Um, a great moment was obviously Mexico in our first season, but that, let's be honest, that was quite a fortunate situation. You know, we had the Mahindras come together and we got our got our first fourth place finish. Um, but the, the, the valuable ones are when you've earned your position like that pole and then you can actually conduct the race and see where you're weaker and where you need to be stronger and against the front runners. And that, that was probably one of the most pivotal moments, I would say. Um, and we got significantly stronger from that point onwards. There's always uh, a, a new, next new development in Formula E, and for this coming season, it's a world championship. Um, Sam Jaguars made a change in the driver lineup and brought in Sam Bird, a driver who's been in part of the series since the beginning, and in fact, the only driver to have won a race uh, in every season. What do you make of, of that? Uh, yeah, it's probably the highest profile uh, driver switch uh, in the series so far. Yeah, I'd, I'd go even further, actually, and say it's one of the most, um, you know, sort of um, ground-shaking uh, signings in, in Formula E since its inception. Um, we're we're going to find out this year, aren't we, and if it's going to pay dividends. I'm sure it will to some extent. It's an intriguing one purely because Sam has raced for just a single team in his Formula, career, Formula E career, and he's also coming into one which is equally inexorably linked with um, with his teammate, Mitch Evans. So... There's a really interesting dynamic there on, on how those two guys work together. The the initial feeling I got at um, Valencia is that it 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 is a it is a harmonious one. And, and when you look at Mitch's teammates, uh, he's had Adam Carroll, Nelson Piquet, um, and uh, Alex Lynn and, and James Collado. He's always worked. Uh, I'm sure James will attest very sort of uh, symbiotically with them and, and in, a, in a good harmonious way. You can't dispute Sam's record in Formula E. The only driver to have won in each of the six seasons, as you said, V2B. And he took the title fight to Verne in season four. So you have to say he's about as good as you can get in terms of forming at least a challenge for a title, you'd have to say. As ever in Formula E, it will be super close. And in that respect, Sam Bird has the now some clever racecraft, I think, to make some real hay. I, I still reckon that his move on Andre Lotter in Mexico last year is one of the best I've ever seen in Formula E. I don't think the, the TV really did it justice, but I, I remember you know seeing that move and it was just absolutely incredible. I, I don't need to tell James how good Sam Bird is because obviously he's made the decision and has seen all the stats and all the feedback to, to have made that decision to get a real hard racer who, who will get the best possible results, I'm sure, for, for Jaguar this season and beyond. Uh, James, you haven't signed Sam as a number two, have you? How are you going to play off those uh, those two drivers against each other? And as hopefully they're both fighting for the championship. Yeah, I mean it's a good problem to have to have two drivers that again you give them the right car, they're capable of delivering results. And um, 
it's you know as Sam rightly said, there's a great harmony between the drivers already. They get on really well, um, and of course, you know if the two of them are fighting at the front of the championship, naturally, you know each driver is going to want to be be on the top step of the podium. But that's kind of that they also understand the reason we're here is to 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 get the best results for, for, for Jaguar as well. And yeah, it's hard for me to say right now how's that going to play out because we we just don't know, right? We, we'll go racing and we'll see where we are. But we've got two drivers, which is really nice. Two drivers that we can honestly say we know can deliver. Um, and you've said it yourself. You know, Sam's track record it speaks for itself. So, you know, we we know if we can give Sam the tools for the job that he's going to go out and uh, and deliver. And that's what we really motivated and excited to see. And the, one of the challenges being. Uh, Coming back into the sport, I should say, um, we didn't have, and we don't have any other race programs, so we don't have a, a big driver pool to, to call from. And some of our competitors do, you know, they've got um, drivers racing in various categories, um, and it's something that maybe gets overlooked sometimes. We don't have that benefit, um, and it took us a little while to also um, be an attractive proposition, to be honest as well, because understandably, if you're a driver, you want to try and be in the best possible car to go and win championships. So, um, and then when we did have a point where we were attractive to, to drivers, the likes of Sam, then, you know, contracts are multiple years. It's difficult to get drivers when, when you exactly want them. And, and so for, for me, kind of that kind of question is actually just a positive one because we have now two good drivers, which has taken as a few years to get to that point to be able to align the stars and um sam has been a great addition he's you know we all know how beat he is uh, i don't think it's been any different from people i speak to uh what he's like when he was racing go-karts to now he's super motivated super positive um and um he's uh, the the team are loving him already he's got a, he's been a great fit and yeah and him and mitch are, are, are gelling really well together so yeah, it's a really positive uh, place to be and a positive problem to have with two two competitive drivers now we um mentioned at the top of the show that you know, the first round in Santiago had been cancelled. On the day that we're recording this, uh, another rejig calendar has been released showing that um, Paris and Seoul won't be taking place. Um, what do you think about um, how the calendar for Season 7 is looking and and the job that Formula E has done in what are very difficult uh, situations? And um, What do you think the chances are of us finally having that race at XL? Yeah, I think firstly... Massive hats off to, to Formula E. I mean, everyone organising a, a live event of some shape or form is uh, is having a huge challenge. I mean, this this week announced in the UK, big events like the the Chelsea Flower Show, which is a massive event in London, has moved back to September. I think the first time in history someone mentioned to me earlier. Um, so it's not easy by, by by any means. And Formula E have done an amazing job, considering they're doing that at a global scale uh, with different governments, different cities. Um, it's it's a massive task that Alberto Longo and the team have on their plates. Um, we obviously are raring to get going. We've you know, we've developed the car, the drivers are ready, the team's ready. Um, so it's great news to have the the first part of the calendar kind of confirmed, um, and amazing that we're going to be racing in in Rome. Um, understandable that unfortunately places like Paris aren't, aren't quite possible at this point in time. Um, so honestly, just from our point of view, we're we're very grateful that we have uh, clarity in the first part of the season now um and that we can we can focus on that you know we've got as i said not only the team but our partners who you know who, who very much support what we do um for for all of us it's it's great to have that clarity and i think the good news is hopefully um you know touch wood that the the, the pandemic situation improves with the vaccinations and you know come the the next announcement about the second half of the season we'll be able to to as you rightly say andrew get back to for the first time uh, for us, but obviously championship's been in, in London before, but get back to London. Uh, we, we're desperate to have a home race. You know, Jaguar is 
is uh, you know, is the only British manufacturer in the championship um, and a home race for us. It's something which I'm, I can't wait for all the team as well, because, you know, friends and family that are so passionate, um, be fantastic to have them in the grandstands supporting, you know, their, their loved ones that are a big part of it. And it's not just us, many other teams have their base in the UK. So London is one I really hope happens. Um, but also, you know, races like New York, um, I think after everything we've all been through, um, it'll be great to get back to some of those, those cities. And I do believe in the para sport can do a, can do some fantastic good. And I think that's what, you know, for, for the fans as well, it's great to get back to racing and, and entertain people. That's ultimately why we're here. Yeah. I, I really hope that, that, that we get to that situation. Sam, I think I might introduce you as our calendar change correspondent in the next one of these, but what's your take on the, on the latest one that's been released? I, yeah, I tend to agree with James. It's, it's such a volatile um, situation for for the team at Formula E to work in, and especially you know, unlike most other, well, pretty much every other championship, Formula E's circuits are made up of the majority of them are made up of street circuits. Some are semi permanent. We've got one permanent one at the Hermanos Rodriguez. So trying to piece together a, a true world championship, multi continent calendar is not the work of a moment. What has been issued today, I think, is that the maximum that they could do, and maybe even a bit beyond. I don't think anybody really anticipated that Rome could happen on the, the, the street track, in my view, the best track in Formula E by, by a country mile, I think, uh, in the in the EUR. Um, if that happens and they can pull that off, then there'll be massive kudos. Vallelunga is the, is the um, designated sub there, so that may come into play. But ultimately, there's a good spread of locations. I think... Ultimately, if, if Formery gets the end of 2021, the season season seven, with uh, at least three what you'd call prestige races. So yeah, for, just as an example, uh, you, you would call Monaco one of those, even though it's not a, you know, it doesn't have the, the history and heritage of Formula One, but it is still a, a glamorous, um, interesting location for Formery. And, and, and take a look at the, the piece which is going up on the race shortly about Monaco and and if we are going to race on the long track that's by no means certain but uh, hopefully there's going to be some clarity on that soon but if we get three what you call prestige races so for example Monaco um, if we can go to Seoul as a season finishing race that would be fantastic if London is not possible but everybody as, as James uh, James said everybody hopes that we can go to Excel and, and have a London Epre of course um, New York would, would seem at this stage to be be very difficult um, but if, if we can get three of those those big ones so if we had Korea if we had this this great start with the double head and night race the first ever one in Formula E um, and then and then we have Monaco I think that's in the circumstances a pretty good deal and then there'll be a rejuvenation of of getting the calendar hopefully um, again as James said when there's a vaccination process has gone through that we can get some really strong dates at the, the circuits we know and love like like Paris and, and New York again and, and maybe some new ones you know we're hearing about possible return to Moscow in the near future we're hearing about something happening in Japan whether it's at a, a permanent circuit or in Yokohama so I think there's a lot of possibilities for Marie have to adding to the, the great venues we already have in here in season six in seven sorry well I can't wait to to see the cars actually in anger again um, James, uh, 
a few more weeks away before we get to that first race in Diria. Obviously, you saw the, the, the pre-season testing. What do you think the competitive order is likely to be? What, what do you think we're going to see inside? Oh, man, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I think what we did see in Saudi is at times, what, two tenths of a second separating nearly the majority of the grid. Um, so it's going to be the typical unpredictable Formula E season, I think, ahead. Um, it's going to be about, uh, and it's interesting, I listened to the Antonio podcast and he said it really well, you know, it's going to be about the fact you know, you, you, you're not always going to be qualifying um, in Super Bowl, uh, given how competitive the season is. So it's going to be how you how you react absolutely, as he said, uh, how you can kind of fight through the field and how you score points on days you you can't get into Super Bowl, um, and it's going to be about being being strong uh, at, at at those times when you 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 need to be and capitalising when you can be qualifying at the front. Uh, that's what the season's I think going to really be is going to be about. And I think we we felt that it's always hard to judge where people are at in Valencia, um, but we were happy with our our preseason test and where we got to and the work we did, um, and some of the runs we did we felt were quite meaningful for for where where we we are and and we we had a bit of a judge of where people are. But like I've said in the past, you never really know until you turn up in in the first race and do the first couple of events and you start to see the true form of where everyone's at. Um, but I think it's going to be about rather than a runaway. A single team or car having having advantage, uh, I think it's going to be about capitalising when you can, as I said, um, and operating effectively as a team, um, minimising mistakes and errors to 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 optimise the results at the end. Um, yeah, and I think I think that's going to what, what it's going to come down to this year. I really do, and I think we've put together a, a really competitive car this year. But um, the uh, when the flag drops, right, that's when. Uh, all the talking stops and the reality plays out. It's amazing to me that it seems like Gen 2 only came in five minutes ago, but we're already looking forward to the third generation of a uh, Formula E car. What, what's the Jaguar position uh, on that? Yeah, I mean, we, we're obviously focused very much on on Season 7 and Season 8 and, and maximising our performance, but obviously we, we at the same time are are looking at the future. And you know, I can't tell you today what, what exactly we are planning and I'll be look forward to kind of announcing plans in, in the future. But overall, we're having positive discussions um yeah and when we when we can we'll we'll let you all know well we can't let you go without having a, a little bit of fun um we're all big jaguar fans i don't know if uh you guys know but well, in the first bit of lockdown i got the lockdown fever and I ended up buying a uh a, an old xk8 to uh to smoke around in just because uh, i could um nice. so um if you had to pick uh, any of, of jaguar's amazing uh, racing cars from the past to uh, take a blast around. Which car would it be, and which track would you drive it on? Oh man, that, that's tough, isn't it? Like it's like asking which is your favourite kid, you know. So, um, well, that's a really tough. I'm, I'm only allowed one, right? Is that what you're saying? I'm only allowed one. Oh, well, we could be here for the rest of the evening, otherwise, couldn't we? That's true. That's true. Well, you can you can only ask, right? It doesn't hurt to ask. So, um, okay, I'm going to go bold. I'm going to go XJR14 at Spa, Ultimate Sports Group C car at Spa. That, that's got to be quite cool, no? I can't see how you're going to have a, a, a bad time doing that. Sam, what would you do? I have got to agree with James, the XJR14, which I was lucky enough to see at Silverstone in 91, was just, you know, from another planet. I mean, I'll go for that at the old Silverstone. And no, in fact, I'm going to treat myself and go full fat 1990 <laughs> spec Silverstone. Uh, and I'm going to go Martin Brundle and, and one lap, one qualifying lap, I uh, just hope poor old Martin's head stays on. That's that's all. <laughs> exactly. What a, what a cool car. I must say though, I did I did Le Mans Classic um, 
one year in a, in a, in a Lotus Elite, actually. And I've never been more envious than watching a D-type with its nose up coming past me like I was stood still. So um, if I could have a second, that, that would be my second D-type at the moment. So um, in the, I've, I've, all, I've always had a bigger uh, appreciation of Jags, and I, ha- and I had an XJS uh, a few years ago. And I would actually, if I could, I'd pick uh, one of those uh, Group A monsters. And I loved it when Walkingshaw took them to Bathurst. And so just to see that over the mountain and uh, down the Conrod, that, that, that would be my pick. Uh, some great cars. We, we, honestly, we have this such a fantastic you know, history of Jaguar racing guys. One of the things I really would love to do one day is, uh, you know, we talked about it and hopefully we can do it at some point is bringing, you know, those iconic cars out and, um, and having Sam and, and, and Mitch experience, you know, everything from a C type, D type, XJS, all the way through to, uh, the group C era. Um, uh, that'll be, that'll be a phenomenal thing to do. And it'd be fun actually to bring one of the, one of the drivers in those former eras to, to experience Formula E as well. But yeah, that's one for us to, uh, to put uh, to put in the to do list when we have chance, but it'll be yeah, it'll be fantastic to to bring that to life. Oh well, that's a tantalising way in which to bring this podcast to an end. I think we'd all absolutely love to see that. I mean, quite frankly, I just I'll take anything on milk float going around the racetrack <laughs> at the moment. But uh, um, thank you all very much. Really? Thank you so much for joining us, James. We wish you all the best of luck for the season, Sam. I hope you get to go to a race uh, paddock at some point soon. Um, don't forget to check out all of his latest news on the-race.com and some of our other podcasts. Earlier today, I was recording a Bring Back V10s looking at Nelson Piquet's win in the 1991 Canadian Grand Prix. So there's always something going on. Um, thank you very much, and that's the end of the show. Mm-hmm.